Scripture. So let's begin with locating uh, spiritual formation and spiritual practices within the Christian life. Now, one way that I could summarize the overall teaching of Scripture is that it opens with God creating everything, including mankind, and it being good. But yet, mankind rebelled against God, and through that rebellion, brought corruption, sin, and death into the world. And the bulk of Scripture is an account of God's redemption of that, of his creation, of God redeeming, saving, and restoring his creation from the consequences of man's rebellion. So in order to understand the role of spiritual formation, we need to understand where it fits within the process of the salvation of an individual person. Because in God's sovereignty, he has made it such that he brings us through different distinct phases of salvation in our lives. So the initial state of any person is a state of sinfulness, a state of being outside of God's salvation. In that state, we are enslaved to sin and incapable of pleasing God. Scripture uses a number of metaphors to describe that state, but the primary one is one of a person who is dead. In other words, a person who is dead has no capability on their own. They certainly have no capability to bring themselves back to life. And in For example, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But then at the point that God chooses to save a person, he brings them out of that state of death into a state of life. And that happens entirely of God's initiative and through God's power. Uh, several Several verses later in Ephesians 2, it describes that. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. In other words, and it's following on that same metaphor of being dead. We were once dead and now God has brought us back to life. He has made us alive to God. Now in this state, we are now capable of pleasing God, but we are not entirely free of sin. We are not entirely free of the corruption that we had in our previous state due to sin in the world. Now, if we skip ahead to the final stage of salvation, that's what we call glorification. And that will happen when Christ returns and we will be uh, made perfect. We will be given a glorified body, as it says in Philippians 3, and we will receive an unfading crown of glory, as Peter says in, in 1 Peter 5. In this state, whatever vestiges of sin that we had from our previous corrupted state will be taken completely away and we will be made perfect and we will no longer even be capable of sinning. And that's a future that we all Christians look forward to with great anticipation. But where we find ourselves this morning is between that point of justification where God has made us alive to him and yet not perfect, but before that final state where he will return to make us perfect. And that stage of salvation is known as sanctification. And in sanctification, we are intended to become more like Jesus Christ in our attitudes, actions, and thoughts. And unlike the point of justification, and unlike the the point of glorification in the future, in which God, of his own initiative and own power, accomplishes all of those for us, in the 
stage of sanctification, we participate with God in becoming more and more like Jesus. And so, Scripture also has metaphors for this stage of salvation as well. Just as the state before salvation was death to life, this state um, is described in a number of different ways. And one of the ones that I find most helpful is, the, is one that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 9. He likens it to an athlete running a race. He says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, he's likening the process of sanctification to the process of an athlete training for a race. There's work that's involved. We must, you have to progressively build strength and endurance in order to be able to compete successfully in, in a race. In the same way, there's work that's involved in sanctification. We need to work and develop spiritual disciplines and be spiritually formed if we are to become more like Christ in this stage of salvation. And so this is where these spiritual disciplines come into play that we're going to be talking about in this series. Now, I explain all this because I wish to avoid a critical misunderstanding that both Christians and non-Christians alike have about spiritual disciplines. See, non-Christians look at Christians and see them practicing these different spiritual disciplines. They may be scripture, prayer, worship, or at least I hope they see Christians practicing these. And they see these outward actions, and it's easy for them to think that that is what it means to be a Christian, the outward the outward um, impression of doing all these things. Now, these things are certainly important, but these things alone cannot save you. As I just said, the point of justification, before that, we were dead in sin. It was entirely an act of God's will and power that brought us out of that state. And so while it's important that we engage in these disciplines, none of them by themselves, or even altogether, are capable of saving us. And so... I want to be very clear that we are talking about these disciplines, but no matter how enthusiastically or consistently you engage in them, they cannot and will not save you. And so I want to be clear also about a common misconception that Christians have about these disciplines as well. And that misconception is the very same thing that non-Christians have, which is that these disciplines are responsible for your salvation. Now, you may wonder, how can someone who's been made alive through the power of God have this misconception that that somehow these disciplines can therefore save them? That's a great question, but the answer is, is that we all have a tendency to have a short memory and to think that somehow we are capable of, of earning or meriting our own salvation. And so when a Christian does it, um, it leads to either two different states, both of which are bad. If, if they're in a situation where they think that they're doing really well with their disciplines, they're reading their Bible consistently, and, and, and they think that everything's just going well for them, then it leads to an attitude of pride or entitlement. They tend to think that we're better than other people, that we have somehow merited the favor that God shows us. Or if they're in a situation, which is also often the case, where they're not 
performing these disciplines well, where they're not being consistent and diligent. They sink into a despair, thinking that uh, I've lost favor with God and that I need to work harder in order to regain his good grace. And neither of these are true. So I want to be very explicit about that. If you are not a Christian, then don't think that these practices will save you. But do listen this morning, because many of these practices, such as Scripture, which we're talking about this morning, are means or channels through which God may extend his saving grace to you. And if you are a Christian, remind yourself constantly that your salvation was accomplished by Christ, not through any of these practices, although anyone who has been saved by Christ will have a genuine desire to become more like him through this process of sanctification. So having located Christian disciplines in the context of the Christian life, let's look more specifically at the practice of Scripture. In order to understand how it works, it's important to understand some of the significant characteristics of Scripture. So we'll look at a couple of those briefly. First of all, Scripture is God's revelation. In other words, it is disclosing something that was previously unknown to us. And it was necessary that it was revelation because, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And in those characteristics, it's the, God is the opposite of us. Where God is spirit, we are embodied. Where God is infinite and eternal, we are finite. And where God is unchangeable, we are changeable. So in other words, God exists beyond our ability to observe or discover him. We can look around and we can see that you know, the world and the universe is, is a, a consequence of some power that is much greater than us. But apart from a revelation from God, we can't know anything more specific about that power. So it was necessary that God entered into our realm, our universe, and revealed himself to us so that we could know him. And in fact, God did that through the prophets in the Old Testament who, who spoke to his people of Israel, through Jesus, who became incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, and through scripture, which records the teachings of the prophets and the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus' apostles who followed after him. And so scripture is, first of all, God's revelation, God entering into our world to reveal himself to us. Second, scripture is inspired. Every book in the Bible has a human author. Some of them identify themselves and some of them do not. But we know that all, of the, all the books in the Bible were written by people. They were written in the languages they spoke, in the cultures in which they lived. And so it would be understandable to ask the question, how can it be God's word if it was written by man? But the doctrine of inspiration says that God inspired these men to write such that these are the true words of God. In 2 Peter 1, it says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the third characteristic of Scripture that's important for us to understand is that it is authoritative. This is derived from the fact that God has authority and that if Scripture is God's word, as we've said through revelation and inspiration, then Scripture itself is authoritative. Now, this may seem somewhat obvious, but even in religious circles, it's very common for people to look at the Bible and say, you know, this has a a lot of good ideas in it. 
there's a lot of wise things to be said in here. And if we combine this with a few other things, like we can probably make some good choices in our lives and, and come to um, a, a good situation. But the reality of the matter is, is that this, the Bible is the ultimate authority. It's not the Bible plus something else. It's the ultimate ground of our knowledge and the ultimate authority for, which, for what we preach. And in fact, if I say anything up here that contradicts that, it's I who am wrong and I who am in need of correction and, and not Scripture. And the same goes for, for any human entity. I mean, um, throughout Scripture, there's plenty, or throughout history, there are plenty of examples of, of uh, churches deviating from Scripture and God raising up men who said, you know, your practice doesn't coincide with what the Bible teaches and bringing his church back into line. And I expect that as we continue, that we are not, that there will be further deviations from Scripture and that God will again raise up men to uh, teach what is taught in the Bible to go back to the final authority that is Scripture and bring his church back into line. And the last characteristic of Scripture that I think is important for us to understand is that it is sufficient. In other words, everything that we need to know about life and godliness is contained in Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then again, in 2 Peter, it also says that everything pertaining to life and godliness has been provided for us. So there are many things that Scripture doesn't touch on. I mean, um, if you're an accountant, it doesn't teach you how to balance the books, per se. But um, it does teach you the godly way of responding to someone who wants you to cook the books if you're an accountant. And if you're a physician, it doesn't teach you how to treat different diseases and so forth. But it does teach you the godly way of dealing with someone who perhaps has a terminal disease. So scripture is sufficient for us to know everything that pertains to life and godliness. Everything that we need to know to live as a disciple of Christ in the world today. There was a, an article recently on a website that, uh, does, that uh, parodies Christian... Um, you know, contemporary Christian culture. And it was, uh, the title of the article was, Man Sitting Literally Three Feet Away from Bible Asks God to Speak to Him. Now, now, the humor in that, in a kind of inside baseball way, is that if we've established that this is God's revelation, inspired, authoritative, and sufficient, then this man sitting here asking God to speak to him is in the presence of God's spoken word to him. And yet, there is a, some truth to that, the, the humor in that is that we still tend to think that we need something beyond that. We haven't understood that scripture is sufficient for what uh, we need to know. Again, it's not uh, inappropriate to pray for further understanding of scripture, but to pray that we need some further revelation beyond what scripture offers us is mistaken. And so I think part of that misconception about scripture comes from the fact that it's so readily available and so easily easily accessible to us. I mean, that hasn't always been the case throughout history. The Bible wasn't always easily available in the language of the people who spoke it and so forth. And so I think there's some truth to the old adage that um, familiarity breeds contempt. But whatever the case, if in any other sphere of our life, if in your occupation, for instance, there was someone who was 
you know, the leader in your uh, field who had written this comprehensive uh, book on how to uh, perform your job in the best possible manner and how to accommodate all known uh, complications that might arise, or in any other field in which um, you were heavily engaged, if there was such a reference, it can be sure that you would, you would seek it out, you would find it, you would read it, you would reread it, and that you would internalize all those lessons from that person who had gone before you and who was, uh, had valuable experience. And, and much, much more, the Bible is that for us in terms of life and godliness, and yet we don't always treat it that way. We don't always seek it out first in our lives. So having laid out those characteristics of Scripture, I think it becomes easier to see how Scripture can function as a spiritual formate, or function in the role of spiritual formation in our lives. If we are to become more like Christ, we need to understand the content of Scripture. This is, after all, what tells us who Christ is and what he was like. In the Old Testament, we see that the prophets calling God's people to repent of their sins and to return to God, and God forgiving them over and over, despite the fact that they would repeatedly sin against him. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus comes to accomplish salvation on our behalf, and he comes to obey God in the place of Israel, who throughout the Old Testament disobeyed God over and over again. And in the New Testament epistles, we see that Jesus, we see Jesus' followers work through what it means to live as his disciples after he's been raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven. And so we need to be immersed in that so that we understand what it means to be like Jesus, what our goal is, how we are, how we are to evaluate our progress in that direction. And it's not just like studying a textbook or a work of literature. Like the Bible is certainly a work of literature, but it is more than just that. It's God's word, and he doesn't leave us entirely on our own to understand it and to divine the truths out of it. The function of the Holy Spirit, in fact, is to teach us and to reveal truth from Scripture to us. In John 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and telling them about the Holy Spirit that will come. And he says, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, the Spirit opens our eyes to the spiritual truth that is in Scripture. So we're not left on our own just to, to extract those truths ourselves. Now this formation is increasingly important in a post-Christian culture as well. We're living in a culture that is trending away from many of its uh, Christian, or many of the culturally Christian things that uh, had been dominant in through decades past. And so we must turn to God's word so that we remain anchored in our understanding of what God considers his virtues and his ideals. There's a theologian and pastor named Don Carson who um, has done a lot of uh, foreign missions throughout the world, and um, especially in Europe, which tends to be several decades ahead of the U.S. in terms of um, moving into a post-Christian uh, culture. And in observing that, he says that in his youth, you know, decades ago, it was a very, we, he hadn't seen that happen nearly so much. So while he would occasionally encounter non-believers or atheists, he said, 
at least they were Christian atheists, which means that at least it was the Christian God that they didn't believe in. At least they were aware of the general biblical storyline of biblical vocabulary of who Jesus claimed to be. And so you could have a conversation with them on sort of that ground level. And he said, increasingly, that's not the case. We get, we find people who are atheists and who know nothing about the Bible. And so the task of evangelism, of sharing the gospel, requires that we understand it in greater depth and in greater detail because we have to explain even more foundational uh, biblical teachings to them. And so it's incumbent on us to understand this even better in the culture in which we live as it trends more and more away from uh, Christian ideals and values. I think it's also worth noting that in the absence of studying the Bible, in the absence of being formed by Scripture, we do not stop being formed. We simply transition into being formed by whatever it is, whatever else we are engaging with, whether that be culture or media or entertainment. Uh, we're always being formed. The question is whether are we being formed by Scripture or by something else. So it's important that we, as Christians, be salt and light as we are called to be in Matthew 5 by Jesus. He's saying that salt and light is, um, salt is described not simply as a, a flavor modifier there, but as something that uh, protects against bacterial degradation in food. So um, the image there is one of protecting against corruption uh, in the world through sin. In Matthew 5, Jesus says to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, being formed by Scripture is the only way that we can be salt and light in the world. Because otherwise, we become salt that has lost its saltiness or a light that has had a basket placed over it. No longer capable of pointing people to God's truth. So I've talked a lot about characteristics of Scripture and how they work or how they function within spiritual formation. But to go back to Psalm 119, our reaction to that needn't be one of um, intimidation from you know, the potential uh, difficulty of, of performing that task. But in Psalm 119, we see um, the entire psalm is the psalmist's meditation on the nature of God's word. And he is really exulting in how blessed he has been to receive it. You see in verse 1, he says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. We see also that he delights in God's law, which is another word for scripture in the Old Testament. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. He said he acknowledges that he has been saved through the wisdom that he finds in scripture. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. And we, he also says that he finds them sweet. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So this isn't a burden that we've been given to 
immerse ourselves in Scripture and to study it and to be formed by it. But it's a gift that's liberating and empowering. And in Psalm 119, the psalmist is recognizing that and exulting in that. And we read only a portion of Psalm 119 this morning because it's quite long, but I would encourage you to read it in its uh, entirety and see all the different ways in which the psalmist recognizes that Scripture is a great gift from God and that by immersing himself in it, he has been blessed. He is wiser than all of his teachers. He has been saved from death and so forth. So if I were to attempt to summarize the practice of Scripture in a single sentence, I guess I would say something along the lines of, it's an ongoing and consistent engagement with Scripture, the graciously given Word of God, with the intention of being transformed more into the image of Christ through the teaching work of the Holy Spirit and being equipped to bear witness to God's truth to those in the world around us. So that's my attempt at summarizing it. It's a a broad topic and one that can't be done justice to in a short sermon. But I would like to close with a couple practical, practical suggestions for how you might develop a spiritual practice of your own, or a practice of scripture of your own. So first of all, if you have no practice of Scripture, then I would uh, suggest that you start simple, start small, and start today. To go back to the analogy of a runner training for a race, uh, if, if you have no background in running and you want to then run a marathon, for the vast majority of people, they can't just walk out the next day and run the full 26 miles. They're not strong enough. We need to train and build up the strength and endurance to get to that point. Likewise, with the practice of Scripture, most people probably can't just jump in and fully comprehend large chunks of Scripture. It makes sense that they would need to work your way up. And so I would encourage you to um, start off small because um, the, the practice that you start today that is the small practice that you start today is much better than the much more ambitious practice that you might start next week or that you might be discouraged because you aren't able to keep up with it. So build, build a habit, build, build your knowledge, build the focus and enthusiasm, and over time, develop something that's stronger. Second, if you already have a practice of Scripture, I would encourage you to build on it, to be deliberate about making it stronger. And to follow on that same metaphor of the athlete training for a race, at a certain point um, in a training program, you can plateau. Your body adapts to whatever exercises you're doing, and it's no longer as rigorous of an of a exercise as it once was. And so in order to continue growing stronger, you have to change up the exercise. You have to do something different. And in much the same way, I would suggest that if you're... Um, You've been at a certain point in your practice of Scripture for a long time. I would suggest that you change it up with it deliberately um, and, and step up the intensity of it. Perhaps if you've been reading um, broad chunks of Scripture, add to that a specific study, a deep study of a particular book. Or pick out a section of the Bible that you don't understand as well and try and make it a point to understand, you know, what is it that the minor prophets are really saying because, you know, how often do we really like spend a lot of time in the minor prophets and so forth? So find, you know, think deliberately about your practice of Scripture and, and think with a mindset towards um, improving it upon be, becoming, as it were, a faster runner.
A third suggestion is do it together with someone. After all, we are all co-runners in the same race, um, running in the same direction. And the Christian life is explicitly not an individual one. It's explicitly a communal one. And so part of the reason why we have things like Bible studies at Christ Church is so that we can participate with one another in our discipline of Scripture, in our discipline of prayer, in our disciplines of community, and so forth. So you know, find people in which you can uh, share and encourage one another and, and make use of that, of those who are running with you as well. My last suggestion for developing your practice of Scripture is to do it without a sense of burden, knowing that your salvation does not depend on it. Once going back to the very first point that I made, no amount of practicing of any of these disciplines, uh, no enthusiasm, no consistency, none of that, is ever enough to save you on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's not you can never lose your salvation by not practicing them. So don't do it with a burden thinking that, oh, I'm, I have to keep up or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall out of God's favor. Do it instead with the same attitude that the psalmist had in, in Psalm 119, that this is something, not an obligation, but an opportunity that we have, a gift that we've been given by God to know who he is and be formed more and more into his image. So... In closing, please join me in prayer.